Book One, Chapter One, Part Two, of A Voyage Towards the South Pole and Round the World, Volume One, by James Cook. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by David Cole, Medway, Massachusetts. Chapter One, Passage from Deptford to the Cape of Good Hope. Part Two. 1772 September. At length, on the 8th of September, we crossed the line in the longitude of 8 degrees west, after which the ceremony of ducking, etc., generally practised on this occasion, was not omitted. The wind now veering more and more to the east, and blowing a gentle top-gallant gale, in eight days it carried us into the latitude nine degrees thirty minutes south, longitude eighteen degrees west. The weather was pleasant, and we daily saw some of those birds which are looked upon as signs of the vicinity of land, such as boobies, man-of-war, tropic birds, and gannets. We supposed they came from the Isle of St. Matthew or Ascension, which isles we must have passed at no great distance. On the 27th, in the latitude of 25 degrees 29 minutes, longitude 24 degrees 54 minutes, we discovered a sail to the west standing after us. She was a snow, and the colours she showed, either a Portuguese or St. George's ensign, the distance being too great to distinguish the one from the other, and I did not choose to wait to get nearer, or to speak with her. The wind now began to be variable. It first veered to the north, where it remained two days with fair weather. Afterwards it came round by the west to the south, where it remained two days longer, and, after a few hours' calm, sprung up at south-west. But here it remained not long, before it veered to south-south-east, and to the north of east, blew fresh and by squalls, with showers of rain. 1772 October. With these winds we advanced but slowly, and, without meeting with anything remarkable, till the 11th of October, when, at six hours twenty-four minutes twelve seconds, by Mr. Kendall's watch, the moon rose about four digits eclipsed, and soon after we prepared to observe the end of the eclipse as follows. By me, at six hours, fifty-three minutes, fifty-one seconds, with a common refractor. By Mr. Forster, six hours, fifty-five minutes, twenty-three seconds. By Mr. Wales, six hours, fifty-four minutes, fifty-seven seconds, quadrant telescope. By Mr. Pickersgill, six hours, fifty-five minutes, thirty seconds, three feet refractor by Mr. Gillett, 6 hours 53 minutes 24 seconds, naked eye, by Mr. Hervey, 6 hours 55 minutes 34 seconds, quadrant telescope, mean, 6 hours 54 minutes 46 and a half seconds by the watch, watch slow of apparent time 3 minutes 59 seconds, apparent time 6 hours 58 minutes Forty-five and a half seconds, end of the eclipse. Ditto, seven hours, twenty-five minutes, zero seconds at Greenwich. 
Difference of longitude. Zero hours, twenty-six minutes, fourteen and a half seconds, equivalent to six degrees, thirty-three minutes, thirty seconds of longitude. The longitude observed by Mr. Wales was by the moon and Aquilae, five degrees fifty-one minutes, by the moon and Aldebaran, six degrees thirty-five minutes, mean six degrees thirteen minutes zero seconds, by Mr. Kendall's watch six degrees fifty-three seven-eighths minutes. The next morning, having but little wind, we hoisted a boat out, to try if there was any current, but found none. From this time to the sixteenth, we had the wind between the north and east, a gentle gale. We had for some time ceased to see any of the birds before mentioned, and were now accompanied by albatrosses, pintados, shearwaters, etc., and a small gay petrel, less than a pigeon. It had a whitish belly and grey back, with a black stroke across from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. These birds sometimes visited us in great flights. They are, as well as the pintados, southern birds, and are, I believe, never seen within the tropics or north of the lion. On the 17th we saw a sail to the northwest, standing to the eastward, which hoisted Dutch colours. She kept us company for two days, but the third we outsailed her. On the 21st, at seven hours thirty minutes, twenty seconds, a.m., our longitude, by the mean of two observed distances of the sun and moon, was eight degrees four minutes thirty seconds east. Mr. Kendall's watch, at the same time, gave seven degrees twenty-two minutes. Our latitude was thirty-five degrees twenty seconds north. The wind was now easterly, and continued on till the twenty-third, when it veered to the north and northwest, after some hours calm in which we put a boat in the water, and Mr. Forster shot some albatrosses and other birds, on which we feasted the next day, and found them exceedingly good. At the same time we saw a seal, or, as some thought, a sea-lion, which probably might be an inhabitant of one of the isles of Tristan de Cunha, being now nearly in their latitude, and about five degrees east of them. The wind continued but two days at north-west and south-west, then veered to the south-east, where it remained two days longer, then fixed at north-west, which carried us to our intended port. As we approached the land, the sea-fowl, which had accompanied us hitherto, began to leave us. At least they did not come in such numbers, nor did we see gannets, or the blackbird, commonly called the Cape Hen, till we were nearly within sight of the Cape. Nor did we strike sounding until Penguin Island bore north-north-east, distant two or three leagues, where we had fifty fathom water. Not but that the soundings might extend farther off. However, I am very sure that they do not extend very far west from the Cape. For we could not find ground with a line of two hundred and ten fathoms, twenty-five leagues west of Table Bay, the same at thirty-five leagues and at sixty-four leagues. 
I sounded these three times in order to find a bank, which, I had been told, lies to the west of the Cape, but how far I never could learn. I was told before I left England, by some gentlemen who were well enough acquainted with the navigation between England and the Cape of Good Hope, that we sailed at an improper season of the year, and that I should meet with much calm weather near and under the line. This probably may be the case some years. It is, however, not general. On the contrary, we hardly met with any calms, but a brisk south-west wind in those very latitudes where the calms are expected. Nor did we meet with any of those tornadoes so much spoken of by other navigators. However, what they have said of the current setting towards the coast of Guinea, as you approach that shore, is true. For, from the time of our leaving St. Iago, to our arrival in the latitude of one and a half degrees north, which was eleven days, we were carried by the current three degrees of longitude more east than our reckoning. On the other hand, after we had crossed the line, and got to the south-east trade wind, we always found by observation that the ship outstripped the reckoning, which we judged to be owing to a current setting between the south and west. But on the whole, the currents in this run seemed to balance each other, for upon our arrival at the Cape, the difference of longitude by dead reckoning kept from England, without once being corrected, was only three-quarters of a degree less than that by observation. At two in the afternoon on the twenty-ninth, we made the land of the Cape of Good Hope. The Table Mountain, which is over the Cape Town, bore east-south-east, distance twelve or fourteen leagues. At this time it was a good deal obscured by clouds, otherwise it might, from its height, have been seen at a much greater distance. We now crowded all the sail we could, thinking to get into the bay before dark, but when we found this could not be accomplished, we shortened sail, and spent the night standing off and on. Between eight and nine o'clock, the whole sea, within the compass of our sight, became at once, as it were, illuminated, or what the seamen call, all on fire. This appearance of the sea, in some degree, is very common, but the cause is not so generally known. Mr. Banks and Dr. Solander had satisfied me it was occasioned by sea insects. Mr. Forster, however, seemed not to favour this opinion. I therefore had some buckets of water drawn up from alongside the ship, which we found full of an innumerable quantity of small globular insects, about the size of a common pin's head, and quite transparent. There was no doubt of their being living animals when in their own proper element, though we could not perceive any life in them. Mr. Forster, whose province it is more minutely to describe things of this nature, was now well satisfied with the cause of the sea's illumination. At length daylight came and brought us fair weather, and having stood into Table Bay with the adventure in company, we anchored in five-fathom water. We afterwards moored north-east and south-west, Green Point on the west point of the bay, bearing north-west by west, and the church, 
in one with the valley between the Table Mountain and the Sugarloaf, or Lion's Head, bearing southwest by south, and distant from the landing-place near the fort, one mile. We had no sooner anchored than we were visited by the captain of the port, or master attendant, some other officers belonging to the company, and Mr. Brandt. This last gentleman brought us off such things as could not fail of being acceptable to persons coming from sea. The purport of the master attendant's visit was, according to custom, to take an account of the ships, to inquire into the health of the crews, and in particular if the smallpox was on board, a thing they dread above all others at the Cape, and for these purposes a surgeon is always one of the visitants. My first step after anchoring was to send an officer to wait on Baron Plattenberg, the governor, to acquaint him with our arrival and the reasons which induced me to put in there. To this the officer received a very polite answer, and upon his return we saluted the garrison with eleven guns, which compliment was returned. Soon after I went on shore myself and waited upon the governor accompanied by Captain Furneaux and the two Mr. Forsters. He received us with very great politeness, and promised me every assistance the place could afford. From him I learned that two French ships from the Mauritius, about eight months before, had discovered land in the latitude of forty-eight degrees south, and in the meridian of that island, along which they sailed forty miles, till they came to a bay in which they were about to enter, when they were driven off and separated in a hard gale of wind, after having lost some of their boats and people, which they had sent to sound the bay. One of the ships, viz. La Fortune, soon after arrived at the Mauritius, the captain of which was sent home to France with an account of the discovery. The governor also informed me that in March last two other French ships from the island of Mauritius, touched at the Cape, in their way to the South Pacific Ocean, where they were going to make discoveries, under the command of Monsieur Marion. Aituro, the man Monsieur de Bougainville brought from Otaheite, was to have returned with Monsieur Marion, had he been living. After having visited the governor and some other principal persons of the place, we fixed ourselves at Mr. Brandt's, the usual residence of most officers belonging to English ships. This gentleman spares neither trouble nor expense to make his home agreeable to those who favour him with their company, and to accommodate them with everything they want. With him I concerted measures for supplying the ships with provisions, and all other necessaries they wanted which he set about procuring without delay, while the seamen on board were employed in overhauling the rigging, and the carpenters in caulking the ship's sides and decks, etc. Messrs. Wales and Bailey got all their instruments on shore in order to make astronomical observations for ascertaining the going of the watches and other purposes. The results of some of these observations showed that Mr. Kendall's watch had answered beyond all expectations by pointing out the longitude of this place to within one minute of time 
to what it was observed by Messrs. Mason and Dixon in 1761. Three or four days after us, two Dutch Indiamen arrived here from Holland, after a passage of between four and five months, in which one lost, by the scurvy and other putrid diseases, a hundred and fifty men, and the other forty-one. They sent, on their arrival, great numbers to the hospital in very dreadful circumstances. It is remarkable that one of these ships touched at Port Prayer, and left it a month before we arrived there, and yet we got here three days before her. The Dutch at the Cape, having found their hospital too small for the reception of their sick, were going to build a new one at the east part of the town, the foundation of which was laid with great ceremony while we were there. 1772 November By the healthy condition of the crews of both ships at our arrival, I thought to have made my stay at the Cape very short. But as the bread we wanted was unbaked, and the spirit, which I found scarce, to be collected from different parts out of the country, it was the 18th of November, before we had got everything on board, and the 22nd before we could put to sea. During this stay the crews of both ships were served every day with fresh beef or mutton, new-baked bread, and as much greens as they could eat. The ships were corked and painted, and in every respect put in as good a condition as when they left England. Some alterations in the officers took place in the adventure. Mr. Shank, the first lieutenant, having been in an ill state of health ever since we sailed from Plymouth, and not finding himself recovering here, desired my leave to quit in order to return home for the re-establishment of his health. As his request appeared to be well founded, I granted him leave accordingly, and appointed Mr. Kemp, first lieutenant in his room, and Mr. Burney, one of my midshipmen, second in the room of Mr. Kemp. Mr. Forster, whose whole time was taken up in the pursuit of natural history and botany, met with a Swedish gentleman, one Mr. Sparman, who understood something of these sciences, having studied under Dr. Linnaeus. He being willing to embark with us, Mr. Forcer strongly importuned me to take him on board, thinking he would be of great assistance to him in the course of the voyage. I at last consented, and he embarked with us accordingly, as an assistant to Mr. Forster, who bore his expenses on board, and allowed him a yearly stipend besides. Mr. Hodges employed himself here in drawing a view of the Cape Town, and parts adjacent, in oil colours, which was properly packed up with some others, and left with Mr. Brandt, in order to be forwarded to the Admiralty by the first ship that should sail for England. End of chapter 1, part 2